Welcome to the Leg of Ski Podcast. I'm your host, Greg, the Ski Physical Therapist. And on today's episode, I interview Aiden Deans, a former Canadian National World Cup ski cross racer, now super dad and promoter of all things ski talk. Ian shares his story of blowing out his knee while racing on the World Cup circuit and the challenges he faced through the rehab process. While he is no longer racing, Ian is still an avid ski enthusiast and active on social media with the focus of using his videos to inspire people to get out and enjoy the mountain. All right. Hey, Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being on today. Just like every single podcast, we're just going to start it off with kind of your story. So can you tell us why you love skiing so much and like, what does that mean to you? Gosh, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Skiing for me is, it's my dopamine rush. It's how I, it's how I stay sane these days. I think originally from uh, from my racing days, it kind of drove my competitive nature. And, you know, as you kind of grow and, and learn how to, you know, take, get an edge on your peers and stuff. And then now it's, I view it more as like, it's my, it's my option to be creative. I think of it as like, uh, an art project now, like a blank canvas when you're going down a hill, be it obviously backcountry is more, I guess, relatable to this analogy, but you know, you can, you can create your own line, your own feeling, your own flow down any given run, be it on inbounds or, or back country. And that to me is just, I don't know, it's freedom. It's freedom. Um, I don't have, you don't have to work when you, well, you do, but you don't really have to try that hard because gravity, you know, gets you going downhill. So that's awesome. So when did you start to ski? I started when I was little. My parents are big skiers. Um, like a lot of people you'll have on the podcast are, um, just kind of like integrated in the community. They'd go on like backcountry trips every year. Um, but it started for me when we were, I mean, like two years old was when we started skiing, but we moved up to, I grew up in Canada. I grew up in a town near Kelowna, BC and the ski hill we grew up skiing at was called big white or is still called big white. Um, they have a, uh, elementary and like I think they had high school aged classes when we were there um so we actually moved up to the ski hill in fifth and sixth grade for the winter time so like come December when the hill opened we moved up there and it was I mean it's it's like what it's the best scenario you can imagine as a kid you would put your book bags or your books in your book bag excuse me ski to school and then you're done school you go home and like drop your bag off at the like bottom of the lift or at your front door and like go ski some runs with your friends and then that's kind of like your day so that was that was like that was fifth and sixth grade um my sister's a few years older than me so like it's a little tougher for her being in the high school years um and going through all like the you know curriculum needs for college and whatnot but uh that's kind of how we got into it it was just it was just so fun i mean one of the questions my parents asked me was like, what do you want to do? You want to do racing or freestyle skiing? I was like your extracurricular activities, right? Like there was no like sports teams or something at the school. It's pretty small, like 30 kids. Um, Hi bud. My, my son's sitting at my door right now in my office. Are you tired (laughs) from your hike? Yeah, you are. Um, And they asked me, you know, do you want to do freestyle or racing? I I just said like, what are my, what are my friends doing? Oh, everyone's doing racing. Okay. So, I just joined the racing program. It was as easy as that. And that fostered, you know, six or seven year professional career way down the road, obviously. But 
you'd think those decisions are more like monumental. And it was just like, I just want to hang out with my friends and race. So that's kind of how we started. And now we're here. Nice. So I'm not super familiar with the um, ski cross side of racing. And I think it's a newer thing, at least that's on the rise globally. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about like what that is compared to downhill racing? Ski cross is wild. Yeah. Ski cross is four people at a time down the same track. Think of it as like roller derby, but on skis or like motocross, but on skis. So you have um, a start gate that all drops at the same time. Three other people race against you. You have big jumps and bank turns and gaps and rollers and you're drafting, you're passing, you're jostling for position. Essentially the first two people down when they at least move on to the next round and then two others from other heats subsequently meet together um, to form, you know, the next heat. So you work through about four heats or three heats to get to the finals. And then it's, you know, podium finish one through three and then fourth place just kind of gets fourth, I guess. There's no podium position for the fourth place person, <laughs> but it's fun. I mean, it, 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 or the origins, at least from like, from what I remember, were kind of like the Jeep Tour X Games type, types uh, skiing where it wasn't regulated. It's just, you know, people flying down the track, the courses weren't, you know, really dialed in. And now they're, I mean, now they're, they're, they're very dialed. They're a little smaller than they used to be. They used to be really gnarly, like just rough and people would get tangled and crash and like netting wasn't set up properly. And now it's more regulated fist took over or, I don't know, 10 or so years ago, maybe a dozen years ago. Um, and, you know, brought more regulations into it. So it's definitely safer. It's a little bit smaller tracks. Now the suits played a role. They wanted ski cross to be more freestyle like, um, so instead of like the skin tight, you know, spandex races that you had in Alpine racing, which I also did, um, you had to have certain amount of like baggage or bagginess on your clothes to make it kind of look more freestyle, like even though you're racing, right? So you wanted to have as tight clothes as you can. And there's commotion with that and politics involved with trying to cheat the system and stuff too. But uh, yeah, ski cross is fun. It's like, it's about as raw form as like racing on the hill with peers, like with friends, right? Like, hey, racing you to the bottom of this run. Okay, let's do it. Okay, well, let's do it within a course now. So we like, we have to go in the same line and like see like who's kind of faster. So it's a ton of fun to do. Yeah. So how did you get into ski crocs versus like doing downhill racing then? Uh, it's interesting. So after high school, um, I took a year off to go to university and I studied uh, kinesiology, the bachelor of science at UBC um, up in Canada. And one of my friends was a mogul skier at the borough pair of my old race skis. And I was like, well, what, like you're a mogul skier. You don't need you don't need race skis. And so, oh no, there's a ski cross race. And I kind of heard of ski cross, like Stan Ray, his wife, Kelsey raced a few races. And this was just before ski cross got put in or around the same time that it got put into the Olympics for the 2010 games. Um, so I kind of knew about it. And so I let him borrow my skis. And then a few months later, it's like, Hey, can I borrow them again? I was like, yeah, but I kind of want to do this too. So I'm not going to give you my fastest pair of skis. Um, so I gave my second fastest pair and I went up and raced. And I think I got third or something, or I think I got third in like 12th. There was two races up there and it wasn't, it was just like, it was just something fun to do outside of like university. Right. And then the next year uh, I did a few more races again, still in, in college or university in Canada. And then I actually dropped, I didn't drop out. I just, I asked the Dean of the program if I could take a year off and he said, yeah, to pursue racing. Right. Cause I did a, 
I did a few races my second year. I got third at nationals, which was kind of crazy. And not all the national team was racing, but a few of the guys were, um, and the coaches were excited to see some young, some young kids coming into it. So started with that. And then, uh, I took a year off of school and started racing full-time and made the national team. Um, and then proceeded to blow my knee in my second world cup race in Colorado and Telluride, which was a huge bummer. Cause I was like 21, like just flying out of the gates. Right. And you just, you're almost like naive. You just, you don't know what you don't know. And you're just carrying on like without a care in the world and, you know, injury happens. Oh my gosh, yeah. It's like you just have the whole world going for you. And then yeah. had, have you been injured before then, or was that your first major, major one? That was the first major injury that really pulled me out of sport or pulled me out of competition. Um, I ended up blowing my knee in Telluride in Colorado and the second heat. So I made it through the first round, the first round of 32. I was in the round of 16, was leading the race um, and got passed over a roller section into a corner and just kind of got like caught up in another guy's skis and it caused me to kind of like fold over to my left, but my right knee kind of went underneath me. And then I kind of spun around and grabbed my leg shot out from underneath me. I think during that time, obviously like ACL posterior lateral meniscus did some, um, I guess what it would be or LCL. I did some like, I did some LCL damage, but it was, it sucks. I mean, you're, you're a physical therapist, you know, you see it, you see it every day. Um, as a skier, knee injuries felt like they're a rite of passage that you just never wanted to like come knocking on your door. It's, it's brutal. It, it, it ends people's careers. And some people are like, Oh, it's six months. It's like, <laughs> if your knee injury is six months and you're back to a hundred percent, you need to tell me what you're doing. Cause it is no chance. Like it took, it took closer to probably two and a half years to be full, um, fully better. You had to wait a little bit of time to let swelling and stuff go down. At least I did. Um, and then they actually did a high tibial osteotomy. So they broke my, they broke my shin open and put a wedge of bone in there to take some pressure off the posterior lateral corner instead of reconstructing that. Cause they just wouldn't have, I guess they didn't have good outcomes or they didn't know that it would be a good outcome. Um, and they didn't want to do surgery for the LCL because it's just like a grade one or two tear. So I did a hamstring replacement for ACL, did the high tip of the osteotomy. And like, as I'm in the hospital, the, there's a, another guy sitting there in the waiting room and he's going in for a second high tip of the osteotomy. He's like, I wouldn't wish this upon my worst enemy. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm like 21 and going into the OR in 15 minutes and just like struck with pain. Um, the cool thing is, is that uh, Stan's wife, Kelsey, and we're not breaking any HIPAA laws here because she told me it's, it's cool, but she had a knee injury around the same time uh, or knee surgery around the same time, actually. And she got a cadaver graph as a replacement. So I think this is her second knee injury. So I think we have material from the same donor. Um, at least the doctor said we, it was very like a very good chance that we did. So that's kind of cool, I guess. <laughs> something in common that you like, yeah, right. share, yeah, share at parties together huh <laughs> yeah totally uh, I'm very curious because obviously you had a lot going for your career at the time like once you're yeah. laying there in the snow obviously something is wrong like once the adrenaline settled down like what was going through your mind at that time um 
yeah, it was a oh, you know what moment. Like I was, like I said, the knee injuries were like a rite of passage. And I remember going to the clinic in Telluride. And again, growing up in Canada, you, you like hear horror stories of like the U.S. healthcare system charging you like like enormous amounts of money for like going in and getting a bandaid or whatever. And that wasn't the case. But I remember sitting there in this you know family med doc or at the hill, like felt my knee did one of like the forgetting what the test is called where you just grab the shin and like pull back and forth um and he's like ah either you have loose acls or or you you blew it and kind of like gave me a little sliver of hope still because again in denial right like a lot of pain obviously um and then i fly home to Kelowna, go see a, an orthopedic surgeon and he like does one test he's like clunk clunk he's like your knees <laughs> it's like oh thanks man like let me fall from great like like take me down slowly at least or you just kind of shot me down so yeah that's just like you just kind of wonder like what what's life going to be like next how am i how am i going to actually like get through this this feels like it's never going to get better because it's the pain is so acute the trauma is so like it's just it's so raw um there's so much to there's so much room to you have to, you have to like make up so much ground from that point that you're at, it just almost feels impossible. So a lot of defeat, obviously. Yeah. And then like dealing with all those emotions and then going to the surgeon, I'm sure that was like really tough to hear. It's like, Oh, my knee's way worse than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. You like held on to a little, like the travel home from Colorado. I like held on to a little, little sliver of hope. Like, okay. It's like, it's, it just hurts a little bit or like a lot. And you know, it might be, some like a strain or, or whatever. And so I was like, kind of just holding on to a little bit of hope that it wasn't significant, but it was, yeah, bone bruising and the damaged posterior corner and all that fun stuff. So that yeah, was not good. So how long after your injury uh, did it take for you to get surgery? Uh, so the doctor I saw wanted me to have very little swelling and I can't remember the reason why um, but I think that's pretty common practice. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, I think, I, I think it definitely depends on like what tissue you put on and stuff. Like if it's, um, time sensitive or not, but this injury, I don't think was time sensitive. It, I heard it like mid December. It wasn't until like the early March that I actually got the surgery. Like it met their standard for, um, for operations. So again, that time of like, man, I can't get, you know, the swelling down or I can't get proper range of motion or at least you know within a certain few degrees of full range of motion which was like very frustrating right um again still going like i was able to get back in school at that time so i'd only missed a semester um but trying to like balance school and do rehab and like pt or like pre rehab i guess um a lot of question marks a lot of frustrations for sure yeah totally i mean that waiting to surgery period can be very daunting for a lot of people yeah um do you have any tips like through for someone maybe in that situation as they're preparing for surgery, like things that you would do or things that you did that were really helpful? Yeah. The biggest thing that I can say looking back and even now, like going through injuries now is you have to be like the biggest advocate for yourself. And luckily I had like a really good team doctor who was advocating for me and like sending me research and like getting the most, the most current data um, and whatnot. But at the same time, 
it's up to you what you want to do, right? Like they'll give you options. Hey, you can go this route and he has this percent chance or, you know, like even in terms of like graphs for like, oh, you want to do hamstring or like patella, you want to do a cadaver. I'm like, well, <laughs> there's a lot of pressure on my knees when I ski. I can't imagine that's going to be very comfortable. Like hamstrings can do some more RDLs and try to build up some more strength maybe. And like cadaver, nah, I'd rather use my own tissue to, to uh, stem away from any type of like tissue rejection at least that was that was my thought at the time so like things like that was was important for me to to really advocate like do your research on it talk to people um found a rock solid physical therapist um joel Pachera, joel i'm blanking on his last name up in Kelowna, um who like who pushed me like hard like pushed me very very hard um outside of what i would do right because you're scared you're like oh i don't want to hurt it more it's like okay well we know what damage is done we know we know what we can't do right now um so we'll just we'll stay within the bounds of what your body can do right now and we'll try to get it to a certain point of of um i've got kind of like prehab recovery right for what the doctor is expecting um and then just prepare mentally for the grind it's hard there's days where even before surgery like man am i ever going to get this do they even care am i even on their radar probably you are but again advocate for yourself and just know it's a decent road ahead um each day one percent at a time one step the step's going to be backwards some days but if you're a pessimist it's going to be hard just it just is you have it has to be glass half full um throughout that process yeah thanks that's like super helpful so yeah you get the surgery and then you get out do your thoughts change from pre-surgery to after surgery at all uh in what way like what do you mean in terms of like your motivation like okay like this has been done and now i can like start yeah. to move forward into the next yeah, step um that's a good question i yes it i don't i don't remember being like apprehensive but i just kind of remember thinking like i had this one epiphany and i thought just like oh everybody who had again who had a knee injury like had to wear a brace like a knee brace like that's just what it was i saw like Lindsay Vaughn, for example, like racing downhill, like knee braces, maybe even two, two, one or two. I can't remember, but I just thought, okay, like, when am I going to get my knee brace? My doctor's like, well, if you need a brace to ski, should you be skiing? Like, should you be relying on the brace to do that? And that's kind of like, oh, that's kind of good mentality. So I just thought of like anything that I, like any progression steps that I was making, I just kind of kept that mentality. Like, oh, if I need extra support for this, or if I can't do it, within like control should i be doing it and like that's a there's a certain like buffer there obviously like you want to push yourself to get better um but i I remember i remember being scared training for the first time which is not a good mental state to be in um like you're doing some free skiing stuff like oh i'm gonna do some like some drills and training and then of course you like hop in the course and gates and i'm with like my old coach from the alpine days who again like isn't trained to look for like the mechanics that have changed after like the significant like realignment of your of your tibia right but again it like knows my skiing so he'd be able to pick up on a few things so back to the advocacy thing again like video yourself ask the right questions take it slow get someone who really understands like body mechanics like talk through your like what are you feeling at a certain point can i do something better like is this are my movements limited because of this operation because of this like for my example because like now my right foot is turned out like a degree or two right do you have to get like different canting in your boots do you have to set up your bindings different or do you have to initiate your turn like 
all those questions were going through my mind, but at the end of the day, it's still skiing. And as an athlete, like you should be willing to adapt. At least I find I am. I don't like to tinker. I just like to kind of adapt to to like new scenarios and situations. So it was overwhelming for sure. I think all those points that you bring up are so true. I mean, like your body has changed after surgery and you have to retrain the like neuromuscular function of all of that and just relearn really how to ski. So I think it's unrealistic to expect someone, even if they're strong to go back to what they knew before, um, because like you're saying, it takes a lot of time to train kind of all of that back up. It's fun though. Like the, the one, so well, there, there were silver linings. I was able to go back to school and get my degree and stuff. And that was great. So I don't know how long it would take me to finish if I didn't get injured. Um, but you also have the opportunity to like rebuild your, like your, your foundation, right. Of, of, of how you move of your sport. Right. And hopefully it doesn't change your body mechanics so drastically, but learning how to jump again, learning how to like learning control. You're like, Oh, you know, I wasn't that good at this. I have this opportunity right now to take a year or two to really improve like this foundation or this, um, uh, blanking on the words, just like the building blocks. Yeah. Like you, you, whatever was missing before that you were too scared to go back and work on because it was too basic. It's like, now you have the time and the work you put in now, like you can do the small little minute things now, cause that's going to cascade and like really help you down the road a bit. That's what, that was one of the, my mental, um, kind of notes, like just take your time do it right. Do the things you didn't want to do before. Cause you felt like, Oh, it's too nuanced. It's not going to matter, but now you have the time to do it. Yeah. I'm actually very interested in that. So did you have like someone that was filming you and recording you to show you the differences or how did you identify what your weaknesses were? So that way you could go and work on them. Uh, no, I didn't have anybody. Um, it was a lot of me doing it. Um, uh, and my, and my physical therapist really. Yeah. Um, a lot of tra- like a lot of like dry land training and stuff. So like mobility work, right? Didn't do a lot of mobility work before my injury. Um, you know, young, probably just being an idiot. Uh, <laughs> but again, like incorporating that into my exercise program even more so. Um, I can now like put my hands flat on the ground. Like my hamstring uh, range of motion is great. Part of that is because I struggled to actually get terminal extension after my first knee surgery. Cause I ended up having a cyclops lesion form between my tibial head and my femoral head. And so like, it, yeah, I, just, I couldn't get past, I couldn't, I couldn't get to any degree of like hyperextension or which I don't know if you necessarily need, but again, it's trying to get to whatever is natural. Right. Um, so my like physical therapist or physios, we call them would like do some torsion. I can't remember which, like my, which the tib, tib or fib, like which one rotates more, but he would like rotate them and like sit on them to try to get extension. And it was, it was brutal. So he'd, he'd be watching my mechanics, but I wish I had somebody like come on snow. Like we film a lot. Um, but that's, that's past like your, like your rehab stuff. They give you like drills, like, okay, we'll do this, this drill, like two runs, like focus on this movement, like go slow, build up to speed and stuff. And that would take, you know, your return to snow would, program could take multiple months um but then you get into like actual training like up on the glacier in the summer was my first time back and it's like man does my coach really know what it's like to go through this extreme range of motion like going over this massive like absorption we call a cowboy where you're essentially 
maxing out like your hip flexion and knee flexion and getting your chest between your legs to try to suck up um, uh, some train coming towards you. That hurt. Like that did not feel good on my knee. I had not done that throughout any of the rehab process. So I wish I had somebody more. My buddy, uh, one of the guys on the team, still Chris Mahler, he actually does that. He brings his, his physio on hill sometimes when he can and says, Hey, like based off of like your training, like I know you don't like really know ski cross or like know what it feels like, but based on the, like your understanding of like body mechanics, do you think I can do this move any differently based on how you've witnessed me move? Like what an option, what a tool that would have been. Like, I wish I would have thought of that. Yeah, I think that's so cool. And that's like a huge gap in skiing right now that I think doesn't exist. And I'm trying to like work on things to bridge that gap, whether it's like yeah. teaching PSI instructors, like the tissue mechanics or like the tissue loading principles after rehab and like when it's appropriate mm -hmm. to go or how to adjust like a program accordingly. Um, but doing that on snow process, cause it's like, I physically can't be everywhere. And uh, you know, for yeah. like your buddy who's fortunate enough to have someone that's very really nice when they're there, but yeah. you can't be in, at everywhere at once. So if we can get the education yeah. out there of like, does that exist? Does, does that exist? Like, obviously like you have like local ski instructors and stuff and I don't know if I'm taking this while this is right on topic. Does that type of support exist? Is that what you would provide for somebody? Yeah, precisely. That's so because I know like the like tissue loading principles, yeah. I'm like not a certified ski instructor, but I understand right. the mechanics of what goes into that. So collaborating with the people that are ski instructors to get them to a point where it's like, okay, now your range of motion and mechanics of skiing are normalized. Let's get yeah. you back to your normal lesson. So that way they yeah. can do what they want to do, but trying to bridge that gap between like physical therapy ends, you're back yeah. on snow trying to figure out how to ski. And then they're mm -hmm. working with you to get you to ski at a higher level. Yeah. Cause outside of being on a professional or like national team for skiing, you have resources like that. Again, I didn't utilize it. I don't even know if we, if I could at that time, if it was an option, but like just thinking for like club teams you know, here at Snoqualmie Pass outside of Seattle, like something like that, or, you know, people who aren't professional racers or like even recreational racers, right? If that's the sport that you love to do, don't you want your rehab process to be tailored towards that? It's like, yeah, of course. This would be the same if you were a tennis player or a soccer player or whatever else. You'd have somebody watching you on field. It's a little more controlled, right? Like you're in a court in a field, but skiing is just, yeah, it's a big gap. I think kudos, man. That's, that's, a, that's a good opportunity for you. Yeah. Precisely. And it's like the, the cool thing is, I mean, with technology these days, I don't have to be on snow. I could just have you have a friend record you coming down the hill and mm -hmm. then I can give it to someone that has way more of a better eye for actually analyzing ski mechanics. And then I can just yeah. look at it from a biomechanical standpoint and with yeah. both of our minds, just give you like our best opinion on what you can do to improve. So I think, I think it's there, there's opportunity there and it'll be exciting to see what the future of rehab for on snow rehab yeah. looks like. Yeah, totally. Um, as you were going through the rehab process, minus your Cyclops lesion that kind of set you back, did you have any other setbacks or mental barriers at all? Um, yeah, the, the road took longer than I expected it to take. Uh, the first, again, this was 2013. I missed the next season. So I think my first season back was like the 15, 16 season. And I, even though I felt physically good, like mentally, you just, Oh man, those six inches between years. It's, it's just so hard to train. It's so hard to train. And I'd get like overhyped before races. Cause I'd be like, Oh, like this is my chance to shine. Like this, this course is great. 
And then there's courses where you're like, I'm like, there's no way I'm qualifying for this. Cause you have to do qualifications to even make it into the first round, right? There's like 60 ish guys that show up and only 32 guys make it in. So it's normally like a second and a half between first place to 32nd and qualifying. So it's pretty tight over like a minute ish minute, 10 course. Um, so there are races where I would oh, like overstimulate stimulate myself to like prepare mentally and would just completely blow up and like why I was like fired up like an NFL player that was doing like a kick return or something. Right. Um, and then there's times where I was like, just my arousal level, we called it was, you know, a two out of 10. So like understanding where I could perform the best at like mentally doing like breathing exercises, doing like actual physical warmups, all with the goal of like being the best form of myself for that given day in that track was like a huge piece that honestly probably the last two years of my career kind of came back so it took you know i think i said earlier like two or three years it probably took closer to three maybe even a bit more to really dial in and some of that's maturity in sport um to get back to where i was or where i felt like i was and again i look back at video and technically i wasn't that good when i blew my knee like i was far better once I was done my rehab process stuff, I think it was just, again, being like naive and just like a young buck, just going out like a bat out of hell. Um, it was, it was, it was, yeah, <laughs> it was challenging. That's, it, it just was. Um, so mentally pre preparing to perform was just as important for, for physically, but it takes you a while to like actually get to that physical process. And then you understand, oh, well, this is how I felt like in this race, you can kind of go back and reflect. We had a sports psychologist that we worked with um, who took us through exercises. And that was, that was big. That set a foundation for like the last few years of my career where I felt like I was actually like one of, one of the better skiers. I think I finished like 20th in the world was like my highest rank at one point. But I got a few top tens and stuff like finishes, which was great. So That's no other big setbacks other than not understanding my, like the mental capacity that I had until, until later in the, in the game. And like working with someone that's a qualified professional, like a sports psychologist is so huge to help you process some of those yeah. emotions of either fear or like anxiety going into big races and whatnot. So having that resource okay. available as a professional athlete is huge, but it's not only available for professional athletes. Like if you're someone that's injured, you can easily seek a sports psychologist out and help them process yeah. things. So, yeah, you can even act as like, I mean, not an official manner by any means, but, you know, for example, we'd be at races, um, and being on the like, national team at that point, there's kids that were either like club or development that either got like invited to the race or qualified to a certain extent. And this is their first time racing a world cup track. And they're just like, Holy crap, this is huge. Like how, what do you guys do this line? You take this, you have, how far we go off this jump? You're like, Oh, a hundred plus feet. They're like, what? So you kind of take your, you can kind of like coach to that and that almost calms yourself down like in a self in a selfish way by like mentoring the younger younger population so if i could give some advice to people out there it's like if you're trying to work on something yourself help someone you know that's in a similar circumstance uh through that and that will mutually be a benefit for both of you oh that's like that i really like that yeah um, so let's see. So your career ends and then yeah. what does skiing look like after that? Do you continue to race or are you more of just like a free skier? Uh, you hold on to a little bit of 
like just being ornery and competitive, you hold on to a little bit of that ego, like post, like I retired right after the Olympics in 2018. I was the alternate at the Olympics. I didn't get to compete, but I was there. And if I, I always said I'd get tattoos of the rings, if I like officially qualified, I don't even think I'd get like two and a half right now. I just, I was there. It was great. I skied really fast there. Cause I was like testing the track and stuff. So I think I could have done okay. But, um, yeah, after the games, it was again, mentally very challenging because you're on this extreme high of two weeks of bliss of the world coming together and like the most like synonymous, synonymous, is that a word? Harmonious. Yeah. Harmonious fashion. And everyone's getting along. Everyone's super happy and just jazzed and people are winning medals. Like Kelsey won gold there and another teammate won silver and then the guys won gold. So it's just like this euphoric high. And then like you retire and you come home and you're just like sitting on your couch and like, what, what happened? Like, what is life now? Um, so you hold on a little bit of like that ego. So I did some like race, like adult race leagues up in the past and they put on some good stuff and people show up rain or shine. It's crazy. Like you'll have 60 plus guys and gals four nights, five nights out of the week up there. And it could be like 40 degrees in rain or it could be, you know, 15 and snowing people are up there, line up, ready to go. And it's, it's fun. You like have a beer after I won't drink during skiing. I will never do that to my body. And that's something that I would try to push. Well, I won't try to push, but I would just advise people. If you're any bit of a decent skier, even if you're not, it's probably a risk more risky if you're not that good. Um, I just feel like I would push myself way too far if I had any type of like of alcohol in my system. So I don't do that when I, when I race. Um, so when I say beer league, it's not an intoxicated racing league. Um, <laughs> um, but so I do that. And honestly, part of my connection to ski right now is just staying connected to the community that supported me throughout racing. I do a lot of that through like content creation. Now, um, COVID kind of kickstarted like it did for a lot of people in in the content creation space of, finding joy on the hill and hoping other people can kind of relate to that. So I do a lot of POV type videos. I've just started to do, uh, I just started to do stuff on TikTok and it like blew up and it's like mid 200 and something thousand followers now. And like in a few years, which is, it's fun. It's a unique platform. I'm enjoying Instagram a little bit more. Um, you kind of make a little bit more like real connections. I feel like, I don't know if the algorithm or whatnot. Um, so now it's, now it's, yeah, I almost like ski for social media now, which is kind of interesting. It just kind of naturally progressed. A lot of the sponsors I had before I retired, like stayed on board um, throughout this process. Cause I kind of showed them like, Hey, like this is what I'm doing now. And you know, there's like a year gap. So a lot of them are like, Oh, he's you know done skiing competitively or being of value to us. And I'm like, yeah, well, these videos are getting millions of views. Like you guys want to be a part of this Do you want to build something else. Um, and I don't really have a formal plan. It's just like, I go out and ski and if I like what it looks like, I'll post it and I'll, I just want to get people excited. Um, try to ski with, I don't know, people that I, people that I've had fun with doing vlogs and stuff. So we'll do that, but I have a family and a full-time career. So it's a side hustle of side hustles, even if it is right. It brings in a few dollars, but it's more so fun. It keeps me connected. It keeps my skills up. But at the same time, I have to be very careful now because I'm not doing the same amount of training that I was while I was competing, but I have the same like mental fortitude of, Oh, I can for sure do that. I can. Yeah. That's totally fine. <laughs> I got to, I have to slow, I have to slow myself down. I just do. Otherwise I'll, I'll get injured. I'll get in um, too deep, too quick. Yeah. So like knowing what you knew from your ski race days, do you do any like type of warm up or like off off snow training at all these days? 
Yeah. I, I, as much as I possibly can, I'll always advocate for people to do a warm up. Um, generally I like to get like it, say, say it's at Alphenthal here, um, in, in near Seattle, it's a powder day. The lift doesn't open until nine, usually pretty busy. So I'll try to get up there for first chair, do, you know, a handful of runs before noon and come home. Um, I'll do mobility stuff in the, in the lineup and I'll wait, you know, 20 minutes for the lift to open. Um, but then like, once you get to the top, it's like powder fever and everyone just like go. So it's hard to slow yourself down in those circumstances. If you're just cruising like blue runs and stuff, or, or if you have time, yeah. Um, any like clinics I've coached and stuff you always have to do it. I mean, you're, you're a warm blooded creature trying to do activities in a frozen environment. Like if you're not trying to warm up, like it's, it's, going against everything that you are like physiologically as, as, as a, as a, um, as a person. So yeah, hundred percent warm up as much as I can, but I, again, I probably don't do enough. Um, maybe just ski a bit slower the first run again, wouldn't advocate for that. I would advocate for doing some like progressive, uh, warm ups with some squats and lunges and get into some explosive stuff before you, before you hurdle yourself down a run. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love yeah. that your ski dad now, which is cool. Do your kids yeah. ski as well? Yeah, my oldest is he's two and a half. Um, I mean, yeah, it's more so going through the routines for all of us, right? It's it's persistence of us like going through the routine so we know what to expect, like what hurdles to overcome, like the the tantrums and the meltdowns and stuff. But just also like, Hey bud, like, this is what we do. Like, this is where we, how we spend our time. Like this, isn't this enjoyable? Like getting friends and family to come in, to be interactive and be fun. Like skiing doesn't have to be serious. It's gotta be, it's gotta be fun. Um, so we just make, we make games of it now, but I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm trying to keep my body in as decent shape as I can, but again, it's time prioritization. You'd like to think you'd stay in the same physical fitness as you were when you're training for the Olympics, but just priorities change and they're good. They're good priorities. I love, I love my family. I love my kids. Um, but again, then your mental state has to shift a little bit to what the reality is of, you know, that same attitude on, on snow could start some, uh, some significant injuries down the road or, or be the, the catalyst for those anyways. Yeah, definitely. I mean, assuming, assuming things like stay or you stay healthy and things keep mm -hmm. going in the right direction, do you have any big like ski aspirations for yourself or your family that you're trying to go after or any big trips that you're looking forward to? We had a trip this year with a land. Uh, I got to go heli skiing for the first time up in Northern BC and didn't get posted much because it was shooting for the skis for like two years from now or something like the 25 season. I think, what is it? Is it 2020? Yeah, 2023. So it'd be, it would be next season. It'd be the season next. So 24, 25, right? Yeah. Um, I would love to get invited to something like that again. Um, I'm excited for any trip that I can go with like my oldest now, my youngest is like eight months old. So it'll be, it'll be a year or so before we even contemplate putting her in booths just for fun. Um, but yeah, once we ditch the harness with my two and a half year old, that's going to be a blast, but obviously getting invited on those dream heli ski trips where you're testing out, I'm not even testing or shooting for this. He's already tested and they're wicked by the way. They're really fun. Uh, those are, those are fun, right? Like that keeps you it, like that notoriety that you get from creating a name for yourself, professionally racing, like, I mean, that means something, right? Like you work years developing that, um, that namesake and that skill set, right? So to just kind of like retire and be done cold turkey, it's tough. Like you want to stay integrated. 
um, and show that, Hey, like I, I trained all these years, I can do some cool stuff on skis and, and be of value to put to, to companies and brands and stuff still is, is fun. So I wouldn't mind getting invited back to something like that. Hopefully if the land's listing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, the videos that you've put out so far on Instagram, that's where I follow you. have been like, yeah. amazing. I've, you re- actually repurposed a lot of your content on my Yeah, hey, Absolutely. Yeah to try to promote you in that way but do you have anything else you uh, want to promote while we're on the call i just want to get people i just want to get people excited um i have a lot of i have a lot of content that's on hard drives and sd cards and in my camera roll and stuff that i would like to take the time to edit um obviously summertime slowed down a little bit like there's not the craze for for snow and, and snow sports quite as much um so if people can just hype me up to uh to get this stuff edited and posted, that'd be, that'd be kind of cool. All my channels and stuff is just my name. YouTube would be fun to grow on a little bit, like more long form, kind of connect with the people behind the scenes a bit. And I have some stuff, I have some stuff with like a pro golfer, Mac Boucher and like non like racing people that I just haven't edited and have stuff with like kids from the ski club up at big white that I just met them on a day and we just filmed a bunch of stuff being goofy and, and stuff with Stan. I, I posted one of him, but there's just stuff out there that I want to take the time to do, but it's just, again, prioritization is tough. So if anyone's out there and they're, they're fans of what I do, just hype me up and get me, get me psyched to, to post some stuff, please. Yeah. Get them hyped. Or even if you're a video editor and you want to just get started or just like show totally. people what they can do, I'm sure Ian would be more than happy to have you volunteer and put some That's stuff great together point. and promote your product. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a good plug right there. Reach out to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on that point though, Ian, where can people find you? Uh, Instagram handle is at Ian Deans. Um, TikTok is at Ian.Deans, but I'm sure you just like put it in the Googles or the, the Yahoos of the world and you'd find me there. Um, YouTube, yeah, I don't really, I mean, I posted like six vlogs on there. So it's not that much, but just Instagram and TikTok mainly. You can DM me, you can ask me any questions. People talk to me like all the time, like, Hey, what do you think about the ripsticks? Or what do you think about like this, like jacket from Montec? What do you think about this and that? Or just like silly questions, like what length of pole should I get or length of skis and not brand specific. So shoot me a message, send me videos of yourself skiing. I love watching and I love the hype and stuff. So that'd be, that'd be cool if people did that. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thanks so much, Ian, for coming on. Really appreciate it. And yeah, I'm thank you. Hopefully seeing you out there at Alpental soon. Absolutely. We'll make it happen. All right. See you later. Thanks, bud. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Legacy Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please share this podcast with your ski community and follow it so you don't miss another episode. Also, if you have a cool story and would like to be featured on the podcast, please reach out to the team. Lastly, if you're interested in working with me, you can book a strategy call at www.meettheskipt.com where I'll help you figure out the next best steps to keep you moving towards your journey of a lifetime of skiing.